The year is 1980, a critically panned comedy, Caddyshack, starring Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield, and Bill Murray would go on to be a cult classic. George Lucas would release my favorite Star Wars of the series, The Empire Strikes Back. 1980 would also give us two horror films that would define the genre. Friday the 13th would release and become the highest grossing horror franchise in the world. Stanley Kubrick would debut his adaptation of The Shining, which is considered by many today to be one of the most influential horror films of all time. We would see Robert De Niro portray Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull, and we would see the spiral of sexual jealousy and obsessive rage ruin his family life. Today we look at Dorothy Stratton and see what happens when you are the victim of that sexual jealousy and rage. I'm Justin Harvey, and this is Death and Hollywood. Dorothy Hoogstraten was born in Vancouver, British Columbia on February 28, 1960. She would later take the name Dorothy Stratton when she came to the United States. But in 1977, she was attending high school and working at a local Dairy Queen. It was while working at this Dairy Queen that she would meet a man that would change her life forever. This man's name is Paul Snyder. Snyder grew up on Vancouver's East End. At the time, a notorious rough area filled with machismo. He was embarrassed about being the skinny kid and always afraid to get beat up, so he started to work out, and by the time he was in his teens, he was into bodybuilding and had an incredible physique. Growing up in the rough end of Vancouver made Snyder a born hustler, and by the time he was an early adult, he was becoming a slightly successful club promoter. With his body in top shape and perfectly manicured hair and a beautiful mustache, Women in the club scene found him very attractive. The thing about Snyder, though, was he never seemed to get enough money or women, and club promotion wasn't cutting it. In an attempt to gain more money and more women, he started to look at the sex trade. He wore mink, drove a black Corvette, and adorned around his neck an ostentatious Star of David. Around town, he earned the moniker The Jewish Pimp, but in the criminal underworld, Paul Snyder was regarded with scorn, a punk who always seemed to be missing the big score. He finally lost a lot of money to loan sharks, and the rounder crowd hung him by his ankles from the 30th floor of a hotel. This caused him to flee Vancouver. Snyder would split for Los Angeles, where he acquired a gold limousine and started working girls on the fringes of Beverly Hills. He was enamored of Hollywood's dated appeal and styled his girls to conform with a 50s notion of glamour. At various times, he toyed with the idea of becoming a star himself, or perhaps even a director or a producer. He tried to pry his way into powerful circles, but without much success. Soon he gave up pimping as well, because the girls weren't bringing him enough income and wanted even stolen items from him and cost him money. In 1977, Snyder would head home to Vancouver, but he never lost that appraising eye of a pimp. One night, early in 1978, he and a friend dropped into an East Vancouver Dairy Queen, and it was there he first took notice of Dorothy Ruth Hoogstraten filling orders behind the counter. She was very tall, with the sweet natural looks of a girl, but she moved like a mature woman. 
Snyder turned to his friend and said, That girl could make me a lot of money. He got Dorothy's number from another waitress and called her at home. Dorothy at this time was a senior in high school and freshly 18. And I know many of us in the United States consider this an adult, but in British Columbia, you are considered a minor until the age of 19. Snyder would begin what I believe is considered grooming, even though she was older than most people would associate with this experience. Here she is, an 18-year-old woman whose father left the family when she was young. Her family didn't have much money. Then all of a sudden she meets this man, nine years her senior, and he's willingly providing these things. He gave her a topaz ring set and diamonds. He would allow her to escape to her apartment, a plush apartment with skylights, plants, and deep burgundy furniture. He would buy wine, cook dinner. Afterward, he'd fix a hot toddy and play the guitar for her. In public, he was an obnoxious braggart, but in private, he could be a vulnerable, cuddly Jewish boy. The reason I call it the grooming process is Snyder, after years of promotion, had seen many models and sex workers burn out fast. Snyder dealt gingerly with Dorothy's inexperience and broke her in gradually. He even escorted her to the graduation dance and bought her a new white gown just for the occasion. He took her to a German photographer named U. Meyer for her first professional portrait. She looked like a flirtatious virgin, the photographer said. About a month later, Snyder called Meyer again, this time to do a nude photo shoot at Snyder's apartment. Meyer arrived with a hairdresser to find Dorothy a little nervous. After a short time, she fell right in line and began having fun with it all, he said. Meyer was hoping to get the $1,000 finder's fee that Playboy routinely pays photographers who discover new playmates outside of the normal California girls. But Snyder, covering all bets, took Dorothy to another photographer named Ken Honey, who had already an established rapport with Playboy. Honey at first declined to shoot Dorothy because she was still underage, 19 if you remember me saying that, and needed a parent's signature on the release. Dorothy, who was reluctant to tell anyone at home about the nude posing, finally broke the news to her mother and persuaded her to sign the release. Honey then sent these shots to Los Angeles and was sent a finder's fee. In August 1978, Dorothy flew to Los Angeles for a test shot. It was the first time she had ever been on a plane. Playboy had invited her to compete for the Playboy 25th anniversary issue. There is something to say about this meteoric rise in Hollywood. It's one of the most overpopulated cities in the country, filled with beautiful women all trying to make their way. Dorothy comes in fresh-faced and immediately is accepted by multiple facets of the industry. She would end up losing this contest to Candy Loving, but was named Playmate of the Month for August 1979. Almost as soon as she became an official Playboy bunny, Snyder flew into L.A. and proposed. They did not marry right away, but set up playing house in a modest apartment in West Los Angeles. It was part of Snyder's grand plan that Dorothy should support them both. After all, she was an immigrant and had no green card. Later, when it appeared her fortunes were on the rise, during the fall of 1979, Hugh Hefner would personally intervene to secure her a temporary work permit. In the meantime, she was given a job as a bunny at the Century City Playboy Club. The organization took care of her. It recognized it had a good thing. Playboy photographers would introduce Dorothy to agent David Wilder of Barn Wilder Associates. Wilder, who had handled the film careers of other playmates, agreed to meet Dorothy 
and took her on as a client almost immediately. While he represented a few playmates, he had said they always needed something, cosmetic surgery, to enhance brass, or maybe remove scars, but Dorothy was near perfect. The only adjustment he made for her was a name. Hoogstraten would be no more, and Dorothy Stratton was born. Water also stated she was just what Hollywood liked, a beautiful young girl who could actually act. Wilder already had a role for her. Lorimar Productions was looking for a playmate-type girl for a small part in Americathon. Then Columbia Pictures called, looking for a beauty in a movie called Skate Town. Guess who could skate like an ace? His new young Canadian that had just got to town. When Buck Rogers and Galaxina called, looking for that classic girl-next-door look, the type all audiences would think was the picture of beauty, Dorothy was who Wilder sent. It seemed as if no one could resist her. That spring of 1979, Dorothy was either filming or modeling almost daily. One director said, yeah, she's green, but she took instruction well and would improve in moments. It was around this time she seemed to be lightly falling prey to anxiety and asked her doctor for volume to help with these new adjustments and hassles with Snyder. Since arriving in LA, Snyder had been into some deals of his own, most of them legal but sleazy. He had promoted exotic male dancers at a local disco. It was actually his idea to create this male review that culminated with the group being what we know now as the Chippendales. A wet underwear contest near San Monica and a wet t-shirt contest in San Fernando. But his chief hopes still rested with Dorothy. He reminded her constantly that the two of them had what he called a lifetime bargain and he pressed her to marry him. Dorothy was torn by indecision. Friends tried to dissuade her from marrying, saying it could hold back her career. But she replied, he cares about me so much. He's always been there when I need him, and I can't ever imagine myself being with any other man but Paul. They were married in Las Vegas on June 1st, 1979. And the following month, Dorothy returned to Canada for a promotional tour of the provinces. Paul did not go with her because Playboy wanted the marriage kept secret. In Vancouver, Dorothy was greeted like a minor celebrity. The local press, a little caustic, but mainly in awe, questioned her outright about exploitation. I see the pictures as nudes, like nude paintings, she said. They are not made for people to fantasize about. Her family and Paul's family visit her hotel. Highly pleased with her success, her first film was about to be released, and the August Playboy issue was already on the stands, featuring her as the Playmate of the Month. Another reason for visiting Canada was that she was going to star and a new Canadian film by North American Pictures called Autumn Born. Since her murder, not much has been said of this film, probably because it contained unpleasant overtones of bondage. Dorothy played the lead, a 17-year-old rich orphan who was kidnapped and abused by her uncle. Dorothy was excited about the role, although she told a Canadian reporter a lot of it is watching this girl get beat up. While Dorothy was being pummeled on the set of Autumn Born, Snyder kept himself busy with apartment hunting. They were due for a rent raise and were looking to share a place with a doctor friend, a young internist who was a regular at the Century City Playboy Club. Paul found a two-story Spanish-style stucco house near the Santa Monica Freeway in West LA. There was a living room upstairs as well as a bedroom, which the doctor claimed. Paul and Dorothy moved into the second bedroom downstairs at the back of the house. Since the doctor spent many nights with his girlfriend, the Snyders usually had the house to themselves. Paul 
had a growing obsession with Dorothy's destiny. It was, of course, his own. He furnished the house with photographs and got plates reading Star 80 for his new Mercedes. He talked about her being the next Playmate of the Year, the next Marilyn Monroe. When he had a couple of glasses of wine, he'd croon, we're on a rocket ship to the moon, baby. And when we hit it big, he said, they'd move to Bel Air Estates where the big producers live. Dorothy usually felt uncomfortable by this grandiosity. He was putting her, she confided to friends, in a position where she could not fail without failing them both. But she did not complain to him. They had, after all, a lifetime bargain. And he had brought her a long way. As her manager, he provided the kind of cautionary coaching that starlets rarely receive. He wouldn't let her smoke. He monitored her drinking, which was moderate at any rate. He would have allowed her a little marijuana and cocaine under his supervision. But she showed no interest in drugs, except for her volume. Mainly, he warned her to be wary of the men she met at the mansion. Men who would promise her things, then use her up. Snyder taught her how to finesse a come on and how to turn a guy down without putting him off. Most important, he discussed with her who she might actually have to sleep with. Hugh Hefner, of course, was at the top of the list. Many that know Hef said he never slept with Dorothy and that he liked to think of himself as a father figure to Dorothy. Stratton, when she decided to marry, came to tell him about it personally. She knew I had serious reservations about Paul, said Hef. I used to use the word, and I realize it's a bad word. I said to her that he had pimp-like qualities about him. And like most playmate husbands, Snyder was held at arm's length by the Playboy family. He was only rarely invited to the mansion, which bothered him, as he would have loved to develop a relationship with Hugh. And Stratton, who was at the mansion more frequently to party and roller skate, was never actively into the life. Indeed, she actually spoke disdainfully of the whores who serviced Hefner's stellar guests. Yet she moved in the same circle of Hefner's distinguished favorites when it became apparent that she might have a real future in film. Playboy, contrary to the perception of aspiring starlets is not a natural conduit to stardom. Most playmates who go into movies peak with walk-ons and fade away. Those even that Hefner tried personally to promote in previous years had been an abysmal flop. Dorothy was important, said one Playboy employee, because Hefner was regarded by Hollywood as an interloper. They'll come to his party and play his games, but they won't give him respect. One of the ways he could earn that respect was to be a star maker. Dorothy's possibilities were made manifest to him during the Playboy roller disco and pajama party taped at the mansion in late October 1978. Dorothy had a running part and was tremendously appealing. Some people have the quality, said Hef. I mean, there is something coming from the inside. The camera comes so close that it almost looks beneath the surface, and there's that magic in the eyes. And that's the magic she had. That was a curious combination of sensual appeal and vulnerability. After the special was aired on television in November, Dorothy's career accelerated even more rapidly. There was a rush of appearances that left the accumulating impression of stardom. Around the 1st of December, her Fantasy Island episode appeared. Later that month, Buck Rogers. But the big news was that Hefner had chosen Dorothy to be Playmate of the Year for 1980. And although her selection was not announced to the public until April, she began photo sessions with Playboy photographer Mario Cassilli before the year was out. This series would be a drastic difference from the August issue, where she was shot in soft focus, pouting, 
trying to retain that more bland image of the girl next door. This time, she was giving a high glamour shoot, her hair falling in waves, reminiscent of a 50s starlet, her pale skin posed against scarlet velour, invoking images of the young Marilyn Monroe that she was so often compared to. She pushed the boundaries from innocence to eroticism, letting the world know she had mastered the art of sex appeal. By January 1980, it was the dawning of her designated decade. Dorothy Stratton was attended by many photographers, promoters, coaches, and managers. Snyder, sensing that she might be moving beyond his reach, became more demanding. He wanted absolute control over her financial affairs and the movie offers she accepted. She argued that he was being unreasonable, that she had an agent and a business manager whose job it was to advise her in those matters. Snyder then pressed her to take $200,000 from Playboy and buy a house. It would be a good investment for her, he said. He spent a lot of time looking at homes that might suit her, but she had always found something wrong with them. I don't think she was ready to commit herself, or maybe she suspected that he only wanted to attach another lien on her life. This domestic squabbling was suspended temporarily in January when it appeared that Dorothy was poised for a big break. A featured role in a comedy called They All Laughed, starring Audrey Hepburn and Ben Gazzara. It was to be directed by Peter Bogdanovich, whom Dorothy had first met at a roller disco bash in October. Filming was scheduled to begin in late March in New York City. Paul wanted to come along, but Dorothy said no. He would get in the way, and anyways, Pete had told her the set was closed to outsiders. Determined that she would depart Hollywood as a queen, Snyder borrowed their housemates Roy's Royce and drove her to the airport. He put her on a plane in good spirits, and then went home to sulk at being left behind. During filming, Stratton, as usual, did not advertise the fact that she was married. When she arrived in New York, she checked quietly into the Wyndham Hotel. The crew knew very little about her, except for that she showed up on time and seemed very earnest about her role. She was cordial, but kept her distance, spending her time off-camera in a director's chair reading. Dorothy began having headaches. She was eating very little to keep her weight down and working 12-hour days because Bogdanovich was pushing the project along at a rapid pace. While most of the crew found him to be a selfish and mean-spirited megalomaniac, the cast by large found him charming. He was particularly fond of Dorothy Stratton, and just as quietly as she had checked into the Wyndham, she moved into his suite at the plaza. The affair between Dorothy Stratton and Peter Bogdanovich was conducted in amazing secrecy. In that regard, it bore little resemblance to the director's affair with Sybil Shepard, an escapade which advertised his preference for younger women. Paul Snyder, meanwhile, was calling from the East Coast where he detected a chill in Dorothy's voice. She'd be too tired to talk. He would say, I love you, and she wouldn't answer back. Finally, she began to have her calls screened. Late in April, during a shooting break, She flew to L.A. for a myriad of public appearances, which included a Playmate of the Year luncheon and an appearance on the Johnny Carson show. Shortly thereafter, Dorothy left for a grand tour of Canada. She agreed to meet Paul in Vancouver during the second week of May. Her mother was remarrying, and she wanted to go to the wedding. The proposed rendezvous worried Dorothy's playboy traveling companion, Liz. Paul was becoming quite irritable at this time. He called Dorothy in Toronto, and flew into a rage when she suggested that he allow her more freedom. 
Liz Norris even offered to provide her friend with a bodyguard once they arrived in Vancouver, but Dorothy declined. She met Paul, and over her objections, he checked into the same hotel. In the end, she cut her trip short to get back to shooting. Snyder, by now, realized that his empire was a fast-fading mirage. As Dorothy's husband, he technically had claimed a half of her assets, but many of those assets were going into a corporation called the Dorothy Stratton Enterprises, and he was not one of the officers. When she would speak of financial settlements, she sounded like she was reading a strange script. She was being advised, he suspected, by Bogdanovich's lawyers trying to push him to the side. Late in June, Snyder received a letter declaring that he and Dorothy were separated physically and financially. She closed out their joint bank account and began advancing him money through her business manager. Feeling oppressed by forces beyond his control, Snyder tried to cut his losses. He could have maintained himself as a promoter or as a manager of a health club. He was also an expert craftsman and turned out exercise benches which he sold for $200 apiece. And on at least one occasion, he would use these skills to build a wooden bondage rack for his private pleasure. But Snyder didn't want to be a nobody. His rocket ship had come too close to the moon to leave him content with just making it above the clouds. Paul's last hope for a big score was a project he begun a month or so before he and Dorothy were married. He had worked out a deal with a couple photographer friends to photograph Dorothy on skates wearing a French-cut skating outfit. From there, they would print a poster, and they hoped to sell a million copies and net about $300,000. After Dorothy's appearance on The Carson Show, Snyder thought the timing was perfect, but Dorothy had changed her mind. The photographers flew into New York the day after she finished shooting to persuade her to reconsider. They were told by the production office that Dorothy could be found at Bogdanovich's suite at the plaza. During the anxious spring and early summer, Snyder suspected, but could not prove, that Dorothy was having an affair. So as the filming of They All Laughed drew to a close, he did what, in the comic world of Peter Bogdanovich, many jealous husbands do. He hired a private eye a 26-year-old freelance detective named Mark Goldstein. Goldstein began showing up regularly at Snyder's apartment. Snyder produced poems and love letters from Bogdanovich that he had found among Dorothy's things. He instructed Goldstein to do an asset search on Dorothy and determine whether Peter was supplying her with cocaine. And even as he squared off for a legal fight, Snyder was increasingly depressed. He knew underneath it all that he did not have the power or resources to fight Bogdanovich. Maybe this thing is too big for me, he told a friend. And he talked about going home to Vancouver, but the prospect of returning in defeat was too much for him. He felt Dorothy was now so completely sequestered by attorneys that he would never see her again. Paul knew Dorothy had gone for holiday in London with Bogdanovich and would be returning to L.A. soon. He tortured himself with the scenario of the successful director and his queen showing up at Hefner's Midsummer's Night Dreams party on August 1st. He couldn't bear it and blamed Hefner for fostering the affair. He called the mansion trying to get an invitation to the party and was told he was only welcome if he came with Dorothy. But Dorothy didn't show up at the party. She was keeping a low profile. She had moved into a modest little apartment in Beverly Hills. The apartment, however, was occupied by an actress who was Bogdanovich's personal assistant. Dorothy had actually moved into Bogdanovich's home in Bel Air Estates, where the big producers live. 
just like Snyder had always wanted for them. Several days after her return to Los Angeles, she left for a Playmate promotion in Dallas and Houston. There she appeared radiant, apparently reveling in her own success. She had been approached about playing Marilyn Monroe in Larry Schiller's made-for-TV movie, but she had been too busy with the Bogdanovich film. She had been discussed as a candidate for the Charlie's Angels show, although Wilder thought she could do better. Things seemed to be going perfect for Stratton, but being as sweet and naive as she was, she felt regret for how she treated Snyder. She cried in private. Until the end, she retained a lingering tenderness for Paul and felt bound to see him taken care of after the divorce. From Houston, she gave him a call and agreed to meet him on Friday, August 8th for lunch. After hearing this from her, Snyder was so happy. Friends reported he was in high spirits, for he believed somehow that everything would be alright between them again. The lunch date, however, was a disaster. The two of them ended up back in the apartment, squared off on the couch. Dorothy finally confessed she was in love with Peter, and wanted to proceed with some kind of financial settlement. Before leaving, she went through her closet and took the clothes she wanted. Having his hopes raised so high, and then to be dashed again, gave Snyder a perverse energy. Those who saw him in the following days caught only glimpses of odd behavior. In retrospect, they appear to form a pattern of intent. He was preoccupied with guns. Much earlier in the year, Snyder had borrowed a revolver from a friend, Paul told people he never felt easy without a gun. It was a holdover from his days on the East End. But Paul had to give the revolver back that Friday afternoon because his friend was leaving town. He looked around for another gun. On Sunday, he held a barbecue at his place for a few friends and invited private eye Mark Goldstein. During the afternoon, he pulled Goldstein aside and asked the detective to buy a machine gun for him. He needed it, he said, for home protection. Goldstein talked him out of this. In the classifieds, Snyder found someone in the San Fernando Valley who wanted to sell a 12-gauge Mossberg pump. He circled the ad and called the owner. On Monday, he drove into the valley to pick up the gun, but got lost in the dark. The owner met him at a construction site where he showed Snyder how to load and fire the weapon. Dorothy, meanwhile, had promised to call Paul on Sunday, but did not phone him until Monday. They agreed to meet on Thursday at 11.30 to discuss the financial settlement. She had been instructed by advisors to offer him a specific sum. On Wednesday, Paul went and picked up the gun, and Snyder seemed to be in an excellent mood. He told his roommate that Dorothy would be coming over and that she had agreed to look at a new house that he thought might be a good investment for her. He left the impression that they were on amicable terms. Bogdanovich had somehow discovered that Dorothy was being tailed, and he was furious. But Dorothy was apparently not alarmed. She was convinced that she and Paul were on the verge of hammering out an agreement, and she went to meet him as planned. Goldstein watched the house per Snyder's request. He noted she arrived at 12.30. Shortly thereafter, Goldstein called Snyder to find out how things were going. Snyder replied in code that everything was fine. Periodically throughout that afternoon, Goldstein tried calling Snyder with no response. By the time the doctor arrived home, he noticed the closed door, and he also heard the unanswered ringing on Snyder's downstairs phone. No one knows exactly how events unfolded after Dorothy entered that house. She had apparently spent some time upstairs because her purse was found lying in the middle of the living room floor. In it was a note in Paul's handwriting explaining his financial distress. 
He had no green card, it said, and he required support. Dorothy's offer, however, fell far short of support. It was a flat settlement for $7,500. One can only speculate what would make the two leave the living room and go downstairs. Goldstein finally reached the roommate and asked him to check on Snyder. The doctor knocked, and when there was no response, he pushed the door open. The scene shook him, and he yanked the door shut. What he saw was Dorothy laying there nude. She apparently had been sodomized. Whether this occurred before or after her death is not clear. After the blast of the recently purchased shotgun, her body was moved, and there was what appeared to be bloody handprints on her behind and left leg. Near her head was Paul's handmade bondage rack. Rolls of tape, used and unused, were laying around the device, and strands of long blonde hair were discovered clutched in Snyder's right hand. He was found face down, lying parallel to the foot of the bed. The muzzle of the Mossberg burned his right cheek as the shell tore upward through his head. The blast, instead of driving him backwards, whipped him forward over the length of the gun. It is careless to suggest that Paul Snyder loved Dorothy Stratton. If he loved her, it was in a selfish way of one who cannot separate a lover's best interests from one's own. Bogdanovich arranged for Stratton's cremation five days later. Her ashes were placed in an urn and buried in a casket so that he could visit them. Later, he would issue his own statement. Dorothy Stratton was as gifted and intelligent an actress as she was beautiful, and she was very beautiful indeed, in every way imaginable, most particularly in her heart. She and I fell in love during our picture and had planned to be married as soon as her divorce was final. The loss to her mother and father, her sister and brother, to my children, to her friends and me, is larger than we can calculate. But there is no life Dorothy's touched that has not been changed for the better. Dorothy looked at the world with love and believed that all people were good down deep. She was mistaken, but it is among the most generous and noble errors we can make. The family was stunned, but not apparently embittered by Dorothy's death when interviewed. Mothers and fathers, both natural and step, sister and brother flew to L.A. for the service and burial at Westward Memorial Park, the same cemetery where Marilyn Monroe is buried. Hefner and Bogdanovich were there, and after the service, the family retired to Bogdanovich's home for rest and refreshment. It was all very quiet and discreet. Who knows if Hype would have met Prophecy? Would she have been the next Monroe, or was that all just feeling she evoked from the men in her life? In Snyder, she invoked a lust for the ultimate jackpot. In Hefner, his longing for a star to emerge from his guidance. In Bogdanovich, a desire to have the comfort of a beautiful young woman he so craved. She was the reoccurring star in their ambitions and seemed to forget about hers. As for Paul Snyder... His body was returned to Vancouver in permanent exile from Hollywood. It was just too big for him. In that coliseum, made of dreams and deals, he had reached the limits of his class. His sin was being small-time, and who knows where Dorothy Stratton could have reached. She seemed to have no limit, plucked from obscurity because of her outward beauty. In this case, though, her beauty may have been the albatross. Whether it was truly her desire or the pressures of others, Dorothy Stratton's memory remains. Rest in peace, Dorothy.
If you like this story, please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. If you want to help us grow, please share the show with one friend. Also, make sure to follow us on social media to participate in polls and contests. If you'd like to financially support the show, visit our Anchor.fm page and become a monthly supporter or a one-time tipper, and you'll be listed in the credits of the next show. Full sources used can be found on the website within the show notes, but include Death of a Playmate by Teresa Carpenter, an Uproxx article by Daniel Figueroa, and a Washington Post article by Teresa Vargas.